Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. Today's is a little unorthodox episode. I'm narrating an extract of China's Gilded Age, the paradox of economic boom and vast corruption by Professor Wang Wang Ang. I do hope you enjoy it. So the chapter begins, rethinking nine big questions. Mr. Fu won a fabulous deal. Stuffing suitcases full of company shares, he lavished bribes upon influential officials in exchange for subsidising his railway projects with cheap loans and land grants. The policymakers in charge of infrastructure and budgets were not only Fu's pals, but his indirect business associates. Their family members ran businesses in the steel industry, which would benefit from a construction boom. As ties between capitalists and politicians grew closer, the deals got better. The government subsequently doubled land grants and loans to Fu's venture, while turning a blind eye to his inflated costs and risks of losses. Fu even convinced national leaders to change geological definitions so that he could profit from the higher value of land grants in mountainous areas. Through craftiness and connections, he successfully moved mountains to the tune of a staggering fortune. Stories like this seem to expose the gravity of corruption in China. Businessmen colluding with officials to exploit development projects for personal enrichment, cronyism seeping into central and local levels of government, an abundant graft. Economic expansion alongside such corruption has mystified observers leading some to insist that since the 1990s, the economy and regime will soon collapse. But in fact, Mr. Fu is not Chinese. He's American. In Chinese, Mr. Leland Stanford's last name translates into Si Tan Fu. A corporate titan and philanthropist, he founded a university at the height of America's Gilded Age in the late 19th century which today ranks among the best in the world. The Gilded Age was an era of crony capitalism, but these were also years of extraordinary growth and transformation. Millions of Americans moved from fields to factories. Standards of living rose to unprecedented levels for large swathes of the population. New industries sprouted, capital markets expanded, railways opened up long-distance commerce, and super magnates such as Stanford, J.P. Morgan, and John D. Rockefeller emerged triumphant. In this century, the United States overtook the United Kingdom, to become the factory of the world, even as corruption flourished. Today, China is passing through something similar, but not identical, to America's Gilded Age. Reformers under Deng held together a delicate political union and rebuilt from the debris of Mao's disastrous rule just as American leaders reconstructed the nation after the devastation of the Civil War. China's market reform lifted 850 million people out of poverty, yet produced stark inequality, as America also experienced in the 19th century. And, like in the United States, the corruption that prevails in China is of a particular type. 
access money, the purchase of privileges by capitalists from those in power. Yet despite these parallels, the two nations' political systems could not be more different. China is an autocracy, whereas America is a democracy. This book demystified the Chinese paradox of growth with corruption by unbundling corruption and placing China in comparative historical perspective. In this concluding chapter, I recap my key arguments, revisit the comparison of the Chinese and American Gilded Age in depth, and discuss the implications of this book for nine big questions about corruption in China's political economy. Why China prospered with corruption? That's a subheading. The assumption that corruption always hurts economic growth is oversimplistic. Its effects on capitalist activities depend on the type of corruption. By unbundling corruption, I reveal four explanations for why China prospered amid corruption. 1. Access money dominates. To be sure, China has all forms of corruption, but the dominant type today is access money. Rather than merely assert this claim on the basis of subjective judgment or anecdotes, my study presents a range of evidence to demonstrate and compare corruption structures, both across countries, chapter 2, and within China, chapter 3. Given that access money dominates in China, it's no surprise that corruption has gone hand in hand with rapid growth. Functioning like the steroids of capitalism, this type of corruption spurs investment and transactions in the short term. But it also generates risks and misallocates resources towards super-profitable, speculative sections. Chapter 5. On top of that, access money exacerbates inequalities by enriching a club of corrupt officials and politically connected capitalists. These are all clear echoes of 19th century America. Factor 2. Chinese political system operates on a profit-sharing model. So, why does access money, rather than other forms of corruption, dominate? But differently, how did China evolve a more growth-friendly structure of corruption? China's political system operates on a profit-sharing model. Among political elites, their career and financial rewards, graft in exchange for deals, are linked to economic prosperity. Here, rather than grab from businesses through extortion, local leaders are typically eager to extend helping hands to favoured investors by offering special deals, cheap land, regulatory exemptions and other perks. Chapter 5. State business relations in China are not extractive, as Athimoglu and Robinson assert, but rather transactional. What about the millions of Chinese street-level bureaucrats who are poorly paid and lack the power to benefit from deal-making? As Chapter 4 explains, they also operate in a profit-sharing model through compensation practices. Even though formal public wages are standardised at capitulation, i.e. below subsistence rates, the fringe benefits and pay of public employees are pegged to the financial performance of local governments and the agencies within them. In this way, their fringe compensation acts as an efficiency wage, incentivizing low-level bureaucrats to generate revenue and to avoid extortion and theft.
Factor three. Capacity building reforms have curtailed damaging forms of corruption. So no profit sharing arrangement could work without state monitoring and punishment of those who engage in growth damaging forms of corruption. Aiming to generate a modern bureaucracy suited to the globalised market economy, the central government has advanced a host of capacity-building reforms since 1998. Local leaders were on board with these reforms as they constrained theft and predatory practices among their subordinates. Indeed, some devised and added their own control measures on top of centrally mandated reforms. Check out chapter 4. The consequent pattern since 2000 is that while grand bribery exploded, embezzlement, misuse of public funds, petty bribery and extortive practices visibly declined. See chapter three. Simply put, to channel corruption away from its most destructive forms, incentives and penalties must go hand in hand. Neither is sufficient and so. Factor four. Regional competition checks predatory corruption, spurs on development efforts and ratchets up deals. So although there is no electoral contestation, intense regional competition takes place within China's politically centralised autocracy. To stand out from competitors, apart from curbing land grabbing hands, the most able leaders go much further by positioning and branding their locales, experimenting with policies and fostering niches. Chapter 5. Strategies that enhance the overall commercial appeal of their locales. Simultaneously, they also offer privileged access for selected capitalists whose bribes sponsor their personal consumption and wealth accumulation. To win political patrons and corporate clients, leaders must demonstrate competence and career potential. Chapter 5. And if you're really keen, Appendix Chapter 5. In short, in China, development and corruption are competitive. Right, now the book discusses some graphs. I'm going to leap over those, if you don't mind, and discuss a new subsection, Four Big Questions on China. Having explained China's paradox and placed it in comparative historical perspective with America's experience in the 19th century, I now move to revisit Four Big Questions on China's political economy on the basis of findings in this book. 1. Popular accounts paint a conflicting picture of China as either a Confucian-style meritocracy or a festering regime that will soon crumble. Who's right? Accounts of the Chinese political system are sharply divided. One camp, represented by Eric Lee and Daniel Bell, portrays China as a Confucian-style meritocracy where officials are selected top-down in accordance with ability and virtue rather than elections. They argue that Chinese meritocracy presents a superior alternative to democracy. Making strong recommendations for action, Bell states, the Chinese government can play a more active role promoting its model abroad, though he later claims to defend only an ideal. On the other hand, uh, a naysayers, including uh, Mixing Pei and Gordon Chang, who have insisted for decades that the regime is decaying, and on the verge of collapse. This book shows neither view is correct. As chapter 5 detailed, corruption and competence can coexist and even mutually reinforce in China's political system. 
Chapter 6 provided another supporting sign. In my data set of city party secretaries, 40% of the leaders who are netted for corruption had been promoted prior to or in the year they fell. Champions of Chinese meritocracy admit the existence of patronage and corruption. But merit remains the fundamental driver, Li maintains. In fact, my book shows that corruption is not an occasional glitch. It is endemic to the system. The ruling party controls valuable resources, such as land, finance and procurement contracts. And individual leaders command immense personal power. This is why they are constantly inundated with requests for their intervention and favours, often accompanied by graft, as shown in Chapter 5. The meritocracy school also fails to address the problem of who guards the guardians. Lee praises the party's organisational department, which appoints our officials as a human resource engine that would be the envy of some of the most successful corporations. But this department too can be corrupted, and indeed is especially corruptible, because it controls appointments and promotions. Lo and behold, in 2018, 68 officials at the Central Organisation Department were punished for corruption. Naysayers, on the other hand, are in the opposite direction. They magnify stories of Chinese corruption, but ignore vigorous growth promotion efforts among corrupt officials, which I discussed in Chapter 5. The current slowing economy does not validate their predictions of collapse, which were made in the early 1990s. Part of the slowdown results from the fact that most countries, not only China, experience slower growth as they reach middle income. More importantly, assertions of decay provide no explanation for why China has decayed, sustained four decades of transformative development, despite massive corruption. While it's commonly assumed that patronage is now in opposition to meritocracy under the CCP, Actually, they go together. In most patronage-ridden systems, political patrons appoint unqualified clients into offices. Gerda's study of Latin American bureaucracies is a case in point. Chinese political patrons, on the other hand, spot promising clients and nurture their competence over the course of their careers. As one party school leader explained to me, it is their patrons who strategically arrange positions for officials at the lower levels, giving them an opportunity to prove themselves. In other words, while we normally think of merit as intrinsic to individuals, in the Chinese political system, it is cultivated by political patrons. He added, we are, after all, a top-down system, not elected by the people. So it is those on top who decide who gets to move along and ahead. In short, readers should be sceptical of any argument that, hail, that either hails or bashes China. Paradox is a most, the most consistent trait of the reform-era Chinese political economy. Understanding it requires that we underscore and grasp these paradoxes. So here's our next big question on China. How has authoritarian capitalism shaped Chinese corruption? Xi Jinping's China seeks to be rich and communist, reads the headline of a Martin Wolf op-ed in the Financial Times. The title is scintillating. 
But Wolf gets a fact wrong. China is not communist. Far from egalitarian, China has seen widening inequality at a level exceeding even capitalist America. In short, in practice rather, in practice, Chinese political economy operates not according to Marx's exhaustion of each according to his needs, but rather by the principle of each according to his ability and connections. Discussed in chapters four and five. From this perspective, China is better understood as a capitalist dictatorship, disguised as communist. When the CCP's regime concentration of power meets capitalist open markets, the result is a distinctive mix of competitive corruption and growth promotion. Access money easily dominates in China because authoritarian officials can make unilateral decisions and grant exclusive access to profit in contrast to fragmented democracies such as India, where, as Bodan aptly expressed, officials can stop a file immediately. But they cannot move a file faster. See chapter 2. Unimpeded by opposition and consultation, Chinese officials also command extraordinary capacity to bulldoze. Chapter 5. They make big changes fast, which can spur growth, but can also bring about costly blunders, even disasters. For political economists, my, my account of a single yet important case, China, indicates that classifying entire countries as inclusive or non-inclusive, extractive or non-extractive, open or limited access, may be more confusing than clarifying when it fails to capture mixed realities. Conventionally, China is automatically classified as non-inclusive, extractive and limited access because it's a single-party autocracy. Yet, as my book shows, within this autocracy, there can still be plenty of decentralization, competition and private sector participation elements normally associated with democracies. Right, now we have our third big question on China. Will corruption in China lead to regime collapse? Question mark. There is no doubt that China has a serious corruption problem. The Chinese president himself stated that it poses an existential threat to the party. But she is most concerned with a certain type of corruption, grand transactional corruption enmeshed with patron-client relations among political elites, particularly powerful red families or senior party leadership, princelings like Bo Zhilei, and vested interests among powerful sectors of the state-owned economy like control of the oil sector. Such corruption is unlikely to topple the regime by directly slowing the economy or provoking mass protests. As I show throughout this book, even though Chinese officials engage in widespread collusion and deal-making, they do deliver social and economic development. Thus, it is misleading to label the Chinese state overall as extractive or predatory. Evans... I don't think she's referring to me here. Evans defines predatory states as those that extract large amounts of surplus and provide little in the way of collective goods, which he illustrates with the quintessential case of Zaire under Mobutu. China is not Zaire. Nor is China similar to Egypt, where citizens took to the streets out of desperation and frustration with predatory corruption. Dixon's surveys of Chinese urban residents found that although many view corruption as widespread, 
considerably more think the situation has improved since Xi launched his anti-corruption campaigns. In addition, his survey found generally strong levels of political trust and support for the ruling government, despite complaints about corruption and other problems. Rather, Chinese corruption undermines regime stability in other ways. Graft at the highest level intensifies factional rivalry and battles for political succession, as the Beaujolais scandal displayed. As each fiefdom amasses astronomical rents, it grows ambitious and defiant of the top leadership. Walder compares the current dangers facing the CCP to the Guomindang in the 1930s and the 1940s, which was torn apart from within. In Chiang Kai-shek's work, by a special class struggling for power and self-interest, alienating the masses. Corruption may also trigger collapse in one important particular scenario. When the structural risks linked to crony capitalism implode in a sudden meltdown, triggering cascading effects that lie beyond the leadership's control. That is why Xi declared financial risks a matter of national security and made deleveraging a policy imperative. Notably, while many have been betting on China's collapse for years, few even question why the regime in the United States stayed resilient despite repeated crises linked to corruption over the course of the US history, from the First Great Recession of 1839 to the crisis of 2008. Perhaps America is resilient because citizens can vote politicians or a political party out of office without losing faith in democracy. CCP, on the other hand, is inseparable from the administration and the economy. Hence, if massive failure occurs, the people may reject not just the party's paramount leader, but its entire authoritarian apparatus. Third big question. Will Xi's anti-corruption campaign smother growth? To his credit, Xi has boldly taken on the brewing crisis of corruption, while previous leaders swept it under the rug. His anti-corruption campaign benefits China's long-term growth if it is able to rein in the crony capitalism and create an even, transparent business environment. The problem is that the crackdown have gone beyond policing corruption as an expanded to emphasise conformity to the party line and personal loyalty. Making matters worse, his demands for airtight discipline conflict with his calls for daring officials. Facing unusually harsh scrutiny and unrealistic expectations to do it all, bureaucrats feel paralysed, compromising their ability to adapt and innovate. Discussed in chapter 6. So although Xi's sustained campaign has placed officials in a state of high alert, He will not eradicate corruption in the form of access money unless his leadership tackles the root cause, the state's enormous power in the economy. So long as officials control valuable resources and their personal power is unchecked, there will be continuous demand for their favours. In this respect, Xi has worrisomely done the opposite. In the past few years, he has expanded the state sector and imposed more political control. A better question to ask, therefore, is not whether corruption will disappear, 
but whether it can manifest itself in new forms and through new avenues. While access money was traditionally concentrated in land and real estate transactions, see chapter 5, in the near future, it could possibly migrate to technology and innovation sectors, which are powered by a formidable platform, Government Guiding Funds, GGFs. As Wei explains, a GGF is a new form of industrial policy that seeks to use public funds as seed money to increase public and private investment in high-tech and emerging industries. Most GGFs hire venture capital and private equity firms, including foreign companies, to manage and investigate the fun- invest the funds. By the end of 2017, the total target capital size of roughly 1,500 GGFs across China was a mind-boggling sum. Uh, 1.4 trillion US dollars, roughly three times the US trade deficit with China in 2018. While GGFs present a novel financial instrument for industrial and innovation promotion, they may be susceptible to corruption, as it is unclear how the funds are dispersed, uh, by whom and to whom and for what goals. Furthermore, as investment in emerging new sectors is inherently risky and prone to failure, it is difficult to hold fund managers accountable for their financial decisions. Some GGFs are also involved in overseas pro- projects under the Belt and Road Initiative. She's signature foreign policy, which is <laughs> drawn global criticism for corruption. This combination of mega transactions, complex financial instruments and a lack of transparency and accountability may present fertile soil for an advanced form of advanced money. And for an advanced form of access money, despite she's tried to. Right, now we have five big questions on corruption. So, I'll draw a breath. Although centred on Chinese experience, my approach of unbundling corruption is relevant to all academics and practitioners working on corruption and governance. In this final section, I highlight what my book says on five key questions about corruption. One, what is corruption? Corruption is commonly defined as the abuse of of public office for private gain. Most global indicators and academic studies interpret this to mean illegal abuses of power, including bribery, embezzlement and vote buying, which are most prevalent in poor countries. Such a definition excludes undue influence, defined by Isaiah Chiroff as a distortion of political outcomes as the result of undue influence of wealth, which exists in wealthy economies. In this book, however, the concept of access money encompasses legal actions aimed at buying influence. For example, Revolving door practices, inviting politicians, inviting politicians' family members to serve on corporate boards and winning over staffers with promises of lucrative jobs. This broad scope may be controversial. As legal scholar Lessig acknowledges, the notion that our Congress is corrupt as an institution while none of the members of Congress is individually corrupt is hard for many to accept. Some prefer money politics or buying access to describe systemic efforts at influencing policies to one advantage, perhaps because corruption connotates backwardness. To most Americans, as Glazer and Golden point out, and here I'm quoting, corruption is something that happens to less fortunate people in poor nations. 
end quote. For others, calling out corruption in rich nations may appear to denigrate, air quotes, self-imagined national heritage of fairness and democracy, as White observed. I see it differently. Those who value democracy should be all the more vigilant about the potential perversion of formal political representation. The great challenge lies in pinning down money politics in the first world, which is often legal, institutional and ambiguous. Consider lobbying in the United States. Lobbyists are registered, campaign donations are mostly public, and lobbying is legitimate, even necessary for the functioning of democratic representation. It is only corrupt when its influence is excessive, murky, or employed to advance narrow interests at the expense of society. In practice, however, with only a few exceptions, it is impossible to determine when lobbying has crossed the line into corruption. So all of it is accepted as normal. Bribery, on the other hand, gets everyone's attentions because it's unambiguously corrupt. Failure to include access money in theories and measures of corruption reinforces the misleading perceptions that only poor countries are racked by corruption, whereas wealthy democracies are free of it, which contributes to apathy or complacency in the latter. When the perversion of formal institutions for the benefit of narrow interests is not recognised as corruption, it reduces public pressure for necessary reforms to address urgent problems, campaign finance, financial regulation and climate action. We have our next big question on corruption. How should we measure corruption? Corruption is hard to measure. No single measure therefore can be perfect. For cross-national comparisons, expert perception measures of corruption remain the most influential approach. In chapter two, I present a first step in measuring unbundled perceptions of corruption. Only by first systematically measuring different types of corruption across countries can we test certain forms of corruption. Whether, can we test whether certain forms of corruption are more damaging and why? In particular, more efforts are needed to capture the elusive category of access money. While there are many country-specific studies on political connections, including in China, cross-national measures in this area remain scarce. Specifically on measures of bribery, my study highlights the need to distinguish between speed and access money. In other words, bribes paid for different purposes, the former to overcome harassment and delays, and the latter to buy privileges. Firm-level surveys that include questions on bribe almost certainly capture only speed money, as companies are unlikely admit to admit to buying influence, or even if they were offered honest, they may not see their influence-peddling actions as bribery. This literature on speed money should be interrogated with work with, on political connections for a full picture. Apart from improving quantitative measures, scholars of corruption also need to rethink the way we classify the structures of corruption across countries qualitatively. Existing typologies of corruption assign entire countries to a single category on the basis of the analyst's personal judgment of where cases fit. This approach is subjective. And more significantly, it gives the false impression that each country has only one type of corruption. In fact, as I show through the visualizations of my survey results in UCI in chapter two, all countries have a combination of multiple types of corruption, but in various degrees. Next question. Does corruption impede economic growth? 
According to conventional wisdom, corruption impedes economic growth, an assumption that seems consistent with casual observation and a strong backing in cross-national regression analyses. Yet the belief that corruption always impairs growth is flawed, both in its conceptions of corruption and economic growth. Cross-national indices do not unbundle corruption and routinely undercapture access money. Chapter 2. Uh, growth, typically measured as GDP per capita, is a woefully inadequate measure of the economic impact of corruption. On the effects of access money, take the example in my opening anecdote, the construction of railways during America's Gilded Age. Money politics and lobbying induced politicians to grant enormous subsidies, ignore inflated costs and financial risk, and then step in to bail out the robber barons when a crisis erupted, always at the expense of the public. Corporate friendships with the government also licensed the abuse of construction worker, the forced removal of Native Americans and ecological damage. Yet although these social costs may be staggering, Measuring them is near impossible, as Glazer and Golden state. The result is another, the result, as another economist, Jane notes, is a dearth of research on the link between corruption and the cost of misdirected public policies. In principle, we should measure what we value. Yet in reality, we've valued what we can measure. Data sets that are easily downloaded and plugged into regressions have shaped concepts, theories and policies more profoundly than we'd like to admit. Our understanding of corruption and capitalism can be immensely enhanced by developing unbundled measures of corruption and measures of economic impact that go beyond GDP. Quantitative studies should also be integrated with historical qualitative studies that examine the effects of corruption structures on economic development and in particular, the political tactics for channeling such structures towards less growth-damaging forms. In Without a Map, Schleifer and Treisman show that some Russian reforms were successful when leaders exchanged more socially costly rents for less socially costly ones. China's story is similarly one about the selective abolition of certain types of corruption that directly impair growth, even as access money exploded. New question. How does corruption affect inequality? Zeitgeisty. Corruption impacts not just growth, but especially inequality, both economic and political. The two types of inequality are inseparable, although the literature and popular discourse tend to focus only on income inequality. The super-rich are not only far wealthier, they are also more powerful and can manipulate political and legal systems to their advantage through means defined in this book as access money. No study of political inequality can be complete, therefore, without examining corruption. It is worth paying close attention to the Human Development Index, HDI, first developed in the, and released by the United Nations Development Programme in 1990, which promises in, 1919 to go beyond, in 2019 to go beyond income and focus on inequalities in other dimensions, such as health, education, access to technologies, exposure to shocks. This expanded conception of inequality is crucial. My study suggests that 
future extensions of this measure should confront inequality in access to political influence, which is inextricably linked to corruption. Such inequality takes varied forms across countries. In China, where the rule of law is weak compared to the West, it manifests itself as political connections, ties that private entrepreneurs cultivate with individual elite officials for profit-making privileges. In advanced capitalist economies with strong formal institutions and rule of law, unequal access to political influence is found in lobbying systems through which big corporations and interest groups can legally exercise overwhelming influence on policymakers. Because unequal access to political influence profoundly shapes the making of laws and policies, it affects inequality in all other realms, income, access to public services, exposure to risk. To track this form of inequality, we need better measures of access money. Next question. What can be done to combat corruption? The vast research on corruption has offered surprisingly few practical insights on fighting corruption. As Mark Pyman, former commissioner of the Afghanistan Joint Independent Anti-Corruption Monitoring Committee, now there's a mouthful, laments, why is it that people working and researching corruption seem only to enjoy how showing how bad it all is. They seem to like nothing more than to admire the problem. Well, I won't hazard a solution. I will highlight a few implications of this study for anti-corruption e efforts. One size fits all won't work in anti-corruption. My work on unbundling corruption underscores the need for tailoring solutions to the four categories and subcategories. Petty theft, grand theft, speed money and access money. This disaggregated approach is aligned with recent proposals for micro, sector-specific and project-specific strategies that target corruption in particular contexts, rather than treating it as a homogenous scourge. My framework offers a balance, a balance between binary divisions, which are too coarse, and, and scientific approaches, which are too diverse. The balance is essential for context-sensitive approaches to be widely applied in theory and practice. China's experience provides three key lessons for anti-corruption. First, in poor countries where public employees are paid below subsistence, preaching about first world best practices and imposing zero tolerance laws on corruption are not realistic. Public sector reforms in poor and weak states should explore other varieties of transitional administrative institutions tailored to their national context, taking lessons from China but never blindly copying. Second, mitigating corruption with theft and petty bribery requires incentive-compatible capacity-building reforms. While political economists tend to ignore technical policies, technocrats often neglect the alignment of political incentives as a precondition for successfully implementing capacity-building reforms. Chinese politicians are committed to modernising the administration and fighting growth-damaging corruption because they have a share in local prosperity and face tough competition from their peers. Without such incentives, reforming countries routinely adopt the formality of capacity-building reforms but fail to follow through. Third, combating access money calls for a different and deeper set of solutions. Although Xi's campaign has netted numerous corrupt officials, 
it sidesteps the root causes of access money, state control over the economy and leaders' personal power. Worse, she has clamped down on the press, the internet, NGOs, lawyers and civil society. His administration also cut back on local experiments in government transparency and consultative decision-making. In an extremely large administration, top-down inspectors face sharp limits in detecting malfeasance. They need to enlist the aid of civil society. But citizens' ability to effectively monitor corruption is not automatic. It is conditional upon norms of civic responsibility, which are cultivated through practice and professional NGOs. By smothering bottom-up initiatives, she is not only cutting off society's role in monitoring corruption, but also crippling the formation of civic qualities. This sharply distinguishes China's path of anti-corruption since 2012 from the American progressive era. Now here's a final thought. Anthropologist Ruth Benedict, author of an enduringly insightful book on Japanese society, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword, wrote, One of the handicaps of the 20th century is that we still have the vaguest and most biased notions, not only of what makes Japan a nation of Japanese, but of what makes the United States a nation of Americans. This handicap continues to persist in the 21st century, despite the ease of international travel and spread of information. At the height of Japan's rise in the 1980s, many Americans saw Japan as the principal civilization threat from Asia. Today, China takes its place as perceived enemy number one, with far greater consequences for the world. It seems that China and the United States are hurtling towards a new Cold War, shrouded in cultural terms. It is increasingly popular in Washington to frame the competition between the two superpowers as a clash of civilizations. Meanwhile, in Beijing, cultural arguments invoking Confucianism to justify authoritarianism are just as fashionable. But the insistence that China is exceptional and opposed to the West in every respect dooms understanding from the beginning. Understanding China requires that we consider both its differences from the West and its similarities. Or we should also revisit popular narratives that Western societies hold about our own history. As, Benedict quote undersco- as Benedict's quote underscores, we cannot understand others without first understanding ourselves. The pairing of rampant corruption and rapid growth in China finds its clearest parallel in America during the Gilded Age. But this history is often forgotten. Of course, in terms of political freedom, the role of the government in the economy and each country's historical conditions, their differences are stark. Yet the two Gilded Ages share certain similarities. The rise of a nouveau riche, big businesses in bed with government, poverty amid plenty, and pushback against corruption and unbridled capitalism, to, make, to name a few. Fundamentally, whether in China, the United States, or anywhere else, the study of corruption requires revising our basic concepts and theories. This book provided evidence for two core insights. First, while corruption is never good, not all forms of corruption are equally bad for the economy. 
nor do they cause the same harm. Second, the rise of capitalism is accompanied not by the eradication of corruption, but rather the evolution of the quality of corruption from thuggery and theft to influence peddling, to elevate our understanding of the relationship between corruption and capitalism, we must first unbundle corruption and then distinguish its effects on GDP from hard-to-measure social and economic costs. I've taken the first step and hope others will join in. Right. Thank you so much for listening. That was a short extract from the Guild, China's Gilded Age, a new book by Wang Wang Ang, which you can buy now.